Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, The return of the sanctuary city. As the Trump administration cracks down on undocumented immigrants, major American cities from New York to Birmingham are once again offering themselves up as safe havens. We trace the sanctuary movement all the way back to its unexpected beginnings, a Presbyterian minister in Arizona. It's Thursday, March 9th. In the national debate over immigration, one phrase keeps popping up. Outrage about San Francisco's so-called sanctuary city policy. The issue, so-called sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities are pushing back against President Trump's executive orders on immigration. Sanctuary city. The directives signed today by President Trump include revoking federal funds from so-called sanctuary cities, which are said to protect undocumented immigrants. Around the country. Dozens of cities across America that protect illegals and do not report them. City officials are openly defying President Trump's plan to find, detain, and deport immigrants who have entered the United States illegally. In California, immigrants are an integral part of who we are and what we've become. And the president, in turn, is now threatening to punish those cities by taking away federal funds. Bigger cities like Boston, Chicago, and New York are all at risk of losing billions of dollars in aid. This big national fight, it started... Well, I mean, it started literally in the sanctuary of a church. Scott Michaels is a producer at Retro Report, which tells the stories behind the news. He dug into the history of sanctuary cities. The story starts in 1985 with a group of refugees in search of safety. Both El Salvador and Guatemala were in the middle of really, really brutal civil wars at the time between uh, military governments and sort of leftist guerrilla insurgencies. And as the wars went on, the level of violence escalated to the point where there were death squads, there were massacres of entire villages, there were hundreds of political assassinations. Anyone essentially who was thought to be supporting the leftist guerrillas became a potential target for violence or death. Hundreds of thousands of people were fleeing from Central America, and a lot of them started to show up in southern Arizona as they were crossing the border. This happened to be where they crossed. Yeah, I mean, they were crossing all across, you know, Texas and Arizona, but a lot of them started coming through the area near Tucson. And uh, a big group of maybe two dozen people got lost in the desert near Tucson, and about a dozen of them ended up dying, and another dozen or so were taken to the hospital. 
And when that happened, the hospital called a number of local ministers, and one of them was this man named John Fife. They told me about death squads. They told me about uh, people who had been kidnapped and tortured. Who was one of the people who started what became known as the Sanctuary Movement. These were middle-class folks who were fleeing for their lives. And so he started to try to help them apply for political asylum here. And what he found was that practically nobody from El Salvador or from Guatemala was actually getting asylum. They were all being rejected, and mostly they were being deported back to Central America. Despite the tales they were telling of what was happening to them back there. Exactly. We'd take in people who had torture marks all over their body, and the immigration judge would order them deported the next day. Help us to visualize what this actually looked like. These refugees are taken into a church, and then what? What does that look and feel like? So uh, people would go to some churches in Mexico, and Fife or people that he was working with would go down to meet them and talk to them and try to suss out whether or not they were actual political refugees. So they would uh, either drive people across the border or in some cases walk them across the desert and across the border. And remember, this is the 1980s, so the border looks very different than it does now. It's less secure. Yeah. There's very few border patrol agents. There's not giant fences or walls or anything like that. Then what happens? Well, so, you know, we interviewed a refugee that Fife's group helped bring across. We walked and walked, and, and they said, once you have one foot on the other side, we will help you guys to have a new life. And they did. And what happened to her and her family was that they were allowed to live in a church for several months, that Fife and his and the other sanctuary workers, they helped her family get jobs, helped get her in school. They set them up with lawyers from legal aid to try to help them stay in the country legally. We had an opportunity to stay here because of people that cared enough, because of people that wanted us to live. Did Fife know, was he aware of the fact that he was doing something illegal? Yeah, I mean, he was. So I think that he and uh, some of the people that he was working with they had a conversation about what should they do. And it seemed to them that if these people from Central America were deported, then they really might be killed. Uh, And so they decided that it was their sort of moral obligation to take matters into their own hands. I assumed it was illegal. I could not claim to be a Christian and not be involved in trying to protect refugees' lives. So if you put yourself in the shoes of the police back then who are dealing with Fife and his church, you can enforce the law, and that means you're raiding a church, or you don't enforce the law, and then you're not doing your job. So how did they respond? Well, at first, I don't think there was a lot of enthusiasm within the federal government for actually going after Fife and his allies, right? Because you're talking about potentially, as you said, arresting priests and nuns and rabbis and all sorts of religious people. And it really was not going to – they didn't think it was going to be a very politically popular thing to do. But what happened was that as the sanctuary movement – spread, and it started to spread all across the country with hundreds of different churches. They crawled through a hole in a fence and dropped into a ditch. Uh, And it got picked up in the media. Several minutes later, they emerged onto a side street in Douglas, Arizona. It was on 60 Minutes. There was in People magazine. It was in the New York Times. So it was everywhere. So after a while, I think the federal government felt that they just couldn't ignore it. And so what did the police do? The federal government launched an undercover investigation. They sent paid informants. Paid informants into the churches wearing wires. And even 
tape-recorded worship services in our churches. To try to record Fife and his allies planning, bringing people across the border. To catch them breaking the law. Yeah, to catch them in the act, essentially. And um, and they were successful. They were Fife and a number of other people were indicted. Uh, eight of them were eventually convicted, essentially, of smuggling and harboring uh, undocumented immigrants. But none of them actually served any prison time. Most of them got probation. You interviewed a local prosecutor in Arizona who was pretty unapologetic about how he handled it. What did he tell you? Yeah, we interviewed Melvin McDonald. He was the federal uh, U.S. attorney in Arizona and one of the key people in prosecuting the case. Usually you're pursuing really bad people that have committed bad crimes. With the sanctuary movement, you had nuns, uh, rabbis, priests. After a while, I felt it was almost a farce. And I think that he felt that, you know, no matter what your personal moral or religious beliefs, that doesn't give you the right to essentially break the law. We're not going to let any group or organization, even if you're people on the cloth, go forward and defy the laws of the country. We're just not going to do it. He felt that Fife and his allies should have worked through the legal system if they really wanted to change things. And two, I think that a lot of people in the government started to feel that what was being called the sanctuary movement wasn't just a religious movement to try to protect people, but it was also a political protest movement because uh, Fife was a relatively liberal person, and part of the sanctuary movement was to try to protest uh, the Reagan administration's policies in Central America. It's the difference between government policy and private perception. The Reagan administration says people fleeing El Salvador are economic migrants, not political refugees. And um, one th- important thing about the politics at the time was that this was the middle of the Cold War. Right. Right. And so the Reagan administration was supporting the military governments in El Salvador and Guatemala. And those governments were responsible for many of the atrocities that people were escaping. Supporting them as a check against Russian influence in... South America, Latin America. Exactly. You know, as a way to stop the potential spread of communism in Central America. And so the fact that people were fleeing from governments that we were supporting created a political problem for the Reagan administration. Because if they were to acknowledge that these people were actually legitimate political refugees, then they would have to acknowledge the things that the Central American governments were actually doing. That's complicated. It is. <laughs> so how do we get from what John Fife did in Tucson in the 1980s to the sanctuary cities of today? Well, the idea of sanctuary cities is an outgrowth of what the churches were doing in the 80s. So as the movement spread across the country... It is the concept of religious sanctuary, churches giving refuge to undocumented Salvadorans and Guatemalans. By some estimates, as many as 250 Salvadorians are living in Los Angeles. Many come here via an underground railroad which leads from Mexico to Tucson. A number of cities, maybe a dozen cities, started to declare themselves sanctuary cities. and that's Much what... like the churches declared themselves sanctuary churches. Yeah, exa- exactly. You know, the sanctuary cities in a way were sort of symbolic way for cities to declare their support for Central American refugees. And in some cases to pass policies that prohibited um, city employees from asking people about immigration status. So that's where the, the concept of a sanctuary city comes from. When we talk about sanctuary cities today, we're not really talking about refugees anymore. We're talking about undocumented immigrants who are already living here who are trying not to get into the country but to avoid being sent out of the country. So what changed? What, what made those cities more welcoming to not just refugees anymore but, but anyone who crosses the border without authorization? 
what happened is that really by the end of the 80s, the whole sanctuary movement as it existed kind of faded away because, uh, well, the situation in El Salvador and Guatemala started to improve. Uh, And there were a couple other court cases about the way that the U.S. government handled its asylum policy that pushed the federal government to uh, be a little bit more open about who it was giving asylum to. So people who were coming here from Central America and applying for asylum had a lot more success in actually getting asylum. So there wasn't really a need to bring people across the border and hide them because they could go through the regular legal process. All right. So this thing quiets down. What is the impetus for it to come roaring back? There are a couple of things. One thing is that the federal government starts to be a little bit more aggressive about deporting people. Millions of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. are bracing for raids and deportations. This is under President Barack Obama. Exactly. It started really at the tail end of George W. Bush's administration and then going into Barack Obama's administration. So what you started to see was that a number of cities, police departments, and jails didn't really want to be involved in federal immigration efforts. Uh, And we spoke, at least anecdotally, with police chiefs in cities where they did feel like when they were more aggressive about picking people up and cooperating with the federal government, then all of a sudden people in immigrant communities didn't want to talk to them anymore and that they were having trouble solving crimes. Now, other police chiefs and sheriffs don't agree with that and say they don't see the same thing. But certainly we've spoken with a number of large city police departments who did feel that way. So... Fast forward, it's 2016, and sanctuary cities have become the target of Donald Trump. I've spent time with the families of wonderful Americans whose loved ones were killed by the open borders and sanctuary cities that Hillary Clinton supports. First as a candidate and now as president. We have to get rid of these sanctuary cities. It's, it's disgraceful. What exactly is Trump's argument against sanctuary cities? There's this idea that sanctuary cities are helping criminals. Essentially, the police and the jails are not willing to either ask people if they're here legally or not. And a lot of the jails have limited when they're willing to help the federal government with deportations. So they're being accused essentially of protecting people who are here illegally and people who have at least been arrested for crimes. Well, is there any evidence of that? Yeah. I mean, there have been cases where undocumented immigrants have committed very serious crimes. And in some cases where they've been arrested and booked into the local jail and then released, even though the federal government has wanted to deport them. One case that got a lot of attention in 2015 was uh, the murder of a woman named Catherine Steinle in San Francisco. Today, the Steinle family buried their 32-year-old daughter in San Francisco. Uh, and she was shot and killed along the harbor in San Francisco by a man who was an undocumented immigrant who had a long criminal record. Immigration officials say Francisco Sanchez had some seven felonies on his record and had been deported multiple times before he fatally shot Kate Steinle. And who had been deported from the United States at least five times. Imagine if Kate were your daughter and her life was taken by a despicable criminal who had been deported to Mexico five times. Just imagine that. He kept coming back, and he had been a couple months earlier in the San Francisco jail, and they had released him without notifying the federal government that he was going to be released. That seems like a pretty significant indictment of a sanctuary city. Yeah, I mean, I think what San Francisco has said is that it was a mistake, 
but that if they had followed their sanctuary city policy, this person would have been deported. They have a carve out for people who have committed minor crimes. This person, according to them, should have been reported to the federal government and should have been deported. If President Trump succeeds in getting rid of sanctuary cities, what do you think happens to the sanctuary movement? Well, one, you know, a number of mayors of sanctuary cities have said that they won't change their policies, even if the federal government is successful in cutting funding and that they'll try to find other ways to fund city services. That's one. Two, what we've seen is that several hundred churches are, again, at least promising to become sanctuaries, basically letting undocumented immigrants live inside their churches again and to try to help them avoid deportation. So they are back, the sanctuary churches. Yeah, the sanctuary churches are back. Considered fugitives by the United States government, ordered to surrender for deportation, but instead a coalition of religious immigrant and labor groups are helping these illegal immigrants, providing them shelter, supporting them, and protecting them from deportation. It's really kind of an open question whether or not these churches are doing anything illegal. Certainly you could make an argument that they are harboring undocumented immigrants, which would be against the law. Uh, but so far, no one in the federal government has really been willing to do what they did in the 80s and try to go in and make an example out of these churches. And individual people are signing up to basically provide what they're calling sanctuary in their homes and to let undocumented immigrants stay and hide out in their homes. So I, I don't think that the sanctuary movement is going to go away or the idea of sanctuary is going to go away. And um, Melvin McDonald, the prosecutor that we spoke to, he certainly seemed to think that we were going to see another big confrontation on the horizon, just like back in the 80s. When you use the sanctuary of a church to plan the breaking of laws, uh, I don't think that the sanctuary should be protected. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Oh, one more thing. Whatever happened to John Fife, the minister? Uh, he's still in Tucson. He's retired. And um, as of now, he's not. Although he did say that if deportations do increase dramatically, that he would think about getting back in the sanctuary um, business again. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton. Back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Here's what else you need to know today. Hospitals and doctors are speaking out against the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. The American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association say the proposal makes it harder for poor people to buy health insurance and will leave more people uninsured. And spring has come too early across much of the U.S., Temperatures east of the Rockies were as much as 11 degrees higher than normal last month, the second warmest February on record. From Pennsylvania to New Mexico, trees started sprouting well ahead of schedule, and scientists are linking all of it to climate change. Finally, Americans are having less sex. According to the Archives of Sexual Behavior, adults in the U.S. have sex 53 times a year, about nine fewer times than in previous decades. 
The study doesn't offer an explanation, but it does rule out both longer work hours and pornography. A couple more intriguing findings. The steepest declines were among people with college degrees and young adults. But there is one group of people having more sex, people over 70. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. If you're single, are you dating on the Match app yet? Are you a sourdough-starting, microgreens-growing, closet-organizing superstar? It turns out, post-pandemic singles may be the most interesting people out there. And they're ready to have those what-did-you-do-last-year conversations. After this year of being focused on yourself, there's never been a better time to partner up. Download the Match app, set your preferences, and their powerful recommendation engine takes it from there. And bonus, it's now 100% free to message your top matches. Get ready to start something great. Download Match today.